0: Morning, Redeemer. How is everybody this morning? Good. Great. Well, this sermon will be a little bit different than a typical sermon, in that I'll I'll not be covering a specific verse or short passage, but rather this will be a survey or summary of an an entire book of the Bible. So buckle up. (laughs) Now, the idea is that perhaps I or someone else uh, will pick up the theme again at some point in the future and do a survey of the next book and the next and so on to provide a high-level or big-picture view of the Bible. Today I'll preach on Genesis, and because this will just be one, one sermon on this large book that contains 50 chapters. I'll also have to stay at the 30,000-foot level and won't be able to get into much detail except for the most critical points. So in other words, it's if you had to summarize the book of Genesis in 50 minutes or whatever, what would you say? There you go. The word genesis is commonly taken to mean beginning. But more fundamentally, the word genesis comes from a Greek word that means origin. Now, there's a, there's a subtle difference in those two meanings. Beginning has to do with answering when something happened. But origin has to do with, more with where it, come, it came about and how it came about. Or in this case, from whom it came about. So as, as we will see, the book of Genesis contains the origin of the world the origin of man, the origin of sin and suffering, the origin of Israel, and the origin of the hope of salvation. Genesis starts, of course, at the beginning of creation. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the beginning of creation, God was there. Before anything was created, God already existed. This implies that God himself does not have a beginning. He has always been. God does not have an origin. In the beginning, God created everything. Now, there are many things that could be said about what God did at creation, but all that I'm going to mention for the purposes of of this sermon is to note that at creation, God created three different zones. The first was the world itself. The second was the Holy Land of Eden. And the third was the Garden of Eden, which was God's sanctuary. Three zones, and as you enter into each one in order, you get closer closer and closer to God, the world, the land of Eden, and then the Garden of Eden. As part of God's creation, he created living things, plants as well as, as animals. He also created man, a living being with special qualities. Of all the living things God creates, mankind is the only one of whom it is said that God created him in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26. And of all the living things, mankind is the only one of whom God breathes the breath of life in, into Genesis 2-7. So mankind is special and unique. Humans are created beings like all of the other living things God creates, but there is something special about them as well. They are set apart for a distinct purpose. God calls the man Adam. God also creates woman as a helper and companion to Adam, his female counterpart. Adam gives her the name Eve. God gives the man and the woman two primary mandates, two directives that define their purpose. Genesis 1, 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first mandate is be fruitful and multiply. By making them male and female, God gave them the ability to reproduce and multiply themselves, and indeed, this is what God commands them to do. If they are faithful are faithfulness, they will naturally fill the earth and subdue it. And this, this leads to the second mandate, which is to take dominion over all the earth and over all the living things on the earth. The word dominion means power or right of governing and controlling or sovereign authority. So when you have dominion over something, you rule over it and control it. You are the one who gets to make the decisions about it, but you also have responsibility for it. So as part of God giving them dominion over all the earth and over all living things, God provides them their source of food. Genesis one twenty nine And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the, all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God gave them all of the trees of the garden to eat except for one. Genesis 2.16-17, to 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So, here you have the man and the woman living in paradise with God, and they are given a blessing by God and a a purpose for their lives, and the authority direct from God to carry it out. Now, in on this idyllic scene comes the serpent, Genesis 3, 1-6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The bottom line here is that God gave Adam and Eve all of the trees of the garden for food, except for one, which he commanded them not to eat, and yet they ate it. They disobeyed and contravened God's one prohibition to them, in spite of the fact that God had blessed them greatly. God had given our first parents the entire earth to take dominion over, Including all the plants and fruit trees for food, except for one, he told he told them to avoid eating just one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent came along and enticed the woman to disobey and eat of it anyway. And her husband was right there, and he ate it as well. Later in the Bible, we find out that this serpent is the devil and Satan. Revelation twelve nine much later, says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. Now, after Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, they realize they are naked and they hide. Then God comes looking for Adam and finds out that they have eaten of the tree that God commanded them not to eat. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. This this leads us to what I believe is is the key verse of the book of Genesis, and even one of the most key verses of the entire Bible: it's Genesis three fifteen. But I'll start starting in verse 14. The Lord, said, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. And now here's verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God brings judgment on the serpent. The serpent will be cursed above all the other animals and is destined to slither on his belly and eat dust all his life. And then God tells the serpent how he will relate to the woman from now on. There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman. Enmity means hostility, hatred, or a state of ill will. The serpent, who is devil, the devil and Satan, sowed doubt into Eve's, Eve's mind and deceived her and enticed her to spurn God's command. So naturally, we can see why the serpent became her enemy. God also says there will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The word offspring literally means seed, and that is the word that King James uh, uses. And the word is in singular form, not plural. So technically, it's not referring to descendants as in to many, but to one. And this is reinforced by the next verse, which says, he, singular, will bruise your head, And you, which is in singular, shall bruise his heel. The word bruise can also be interpreted as strike or crush. The NIV translates it as he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God is saying that there will be one, a human male, descended from the woman, who will crush the head of the enemy, our enemy, the serpent. And that male descendant will be hurt in the process. The serpent will strike him on his heel. To have one's heel crushed is a wound that one can recover from, but to have your head crushed is an ultimately fatal blow. Now, this this passage is amazing because contained within the curse of our enemy, the serpent, was a promise of blessing to us. The fact that our enemy, the one who tempted us to spurn God, was judged and sentenced to crawl on his belly and eat dust is good news for us in itself. But along with that judgment came a prophecy direct from the mouth of God that one would come from the seed of the woman to completely and ultimately defeat our enemy and thus defeat our enslavement to him. RC Sproul said that theologians have long referred to Genesis 3:15 as the protoevangelion or the first gospel. For Adam and Eve and for many generations after them, this passage would remain somewhat mysterious, but it would have brought comfort to them to know that the race of mankind would not remain forever defeated by their enemy that one would arise from their own flesh who would save them. Now, after God gives his judgment to the serpent, which, is, as we saw, also contained a great promise of hope to mankind, God turns to the, to the woman and then to the man and gives them their sentence of punishment to their disobedience. To the woman, God gives pain and childbearing. For the man, he curses the ground such that it will only be by pain and toil that the man will work the ground to get his food. Adam and Eve don't immediately die on the spot, even though God said that, that they eat the forbidden fruit, that on that day that they eat of it, that they shall surely die. They will die at some point, but not on that day. So there's, there's grace shown there. But God does give them hardships. And the hardships match exactly with the initial mandates that God had given them when he first created them. You'll remember that God had given them the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, in other words, have children, and also to take dominion over the earth, which is where their food would come from. Well, the curse placed on the woman now makes it harder for her to bring forth children, and there will be pain in the process. Women will still have babies. In fact, as we saw, just saw this is how the promised seed of the woman would come about, but the task is made difficult and painful. To the man, the curse placed on him makes it harder for him to take dominion over the earth and to cultivate food. There will be pain in the process, because the ground will now bring forth thorns and thistles in addition to their food. And only by the sweat of his face shall they eat bread. Finally, God does tell them that they will die, physically at least, because they will return to the ground. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. At the fall, the story of mankind was massively redirected. Instead of the human race living in complete harmony with God in paradise, taking peaceful dominion over the earth, we lost our close communion with God. As we will see, there were actually three different falls that happened, two more after this, but this is the first and the most significant. The sin that caused this fall was was the original sin, Adam and Eve's disobedience of God. The effect of this fall is a broken relationship between God and mankind. And there are several punishments that God deals out because of this fall. Physical death, albeit delayed. The curses God placed on the man and the woman, which we we saw. And lastly, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden. Sin, pain, and trouble became major themes of the human existence. One of the commentaries I read describes it this way. What a mournful chapter this is in the history of man. It gives the only true account of the origin of all the physical and moral evils that are in the world, upholds the moral character of God, shows that man, made upright, fell from not being able to resist a slight temptation, and becoming guilty and miserable, plunged all his posterity into the same abyss. How astonishing the grace which at that moment gave promise of a Savior and conferred on her who had the disgrace of introducing sin the future honor of introducing that deliverer. Now, the big question at this point, the question that will linger through the rest of Genesis and throughout the entire Old Testament is, who is this seed of the woman? Who is it? Who will it be? As Christians, we know that this question is answered in the New Testament and that this is what the whole New Testament is really all about. So I believe it is safe to argue that this question and its resolution, who will the seed of the woman be, is the question that sets up the entire plot line of not just Genesis, but also the whole Bible. So throughout the rest of this sermon, this will be the the main theme that we look at as we continue through the story. And a closely related theme we will see is the formation of the two family trees, the family that represents the promised seed on the woman on the one hand and the family of the seed of the serpent on the other, and the enmity that exists between them. These will unfold in a threefold pattern. As I mentioned, there were actually three falls total representing three different broken relationships, and we have seen the first and most significant one already. But in response to those, God sends three different heroes who show how God will restore those broken relationships. And the concept of the three falls and three heroes comes from theologian James Jordan, so I want to give him credit. And also credit goes to Mike for leading me to it. Now, immediately after the the fall, we see in chapter four the announcement of a son born to Adam and Eve. They name him Cain. And then they have a second son, Abel. John Calvin believed that Cain and Abel may have been twins, since the text describes one conception but two births. But regardless, they were the first two sons born to Adam and Eve, and the immediate question then is, will one of these two be the promised seed of the woman that God prophesied in Genesis 3.15? The story of Cain and Abel is a famous story that likely most people know, and as you read their story you find out that, no, neither one is the promised seed. Kids, you know the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain was a worker of the ground, and Abel a keeper of sheep. They both brought an offering of their work, but notably it says that Cain just brought an offering, but Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And God had regard for Abel and his offering, but, for, but God had no regard for Cain and his offering. So Cain became very angry and jealous. And When he and Abel were out in the field together, Cain rose up and killed his brother, Abel. Cain became the first murderer, and God brought judgment upon Cain for the murder of his brother. God told Cain that he would from now from uh, from now on be cursed from the ground, that it would no longer yield its strength to him, and that he would be a, a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So here in the story of Cain and Abel, we have essentially a second fall. The sin that brought about this second fall was Cain's murder of Abel. The effect it brought about was a broken relationship between brother and brother, a split between the first two brothers who ever existed, which meant really a split in the entire human family. And as Adam and Eve were cast out of the inner presence of God in the Garden of Eden, the punishment for this this fall was that Cain was cast out of the land of Eden itself, further away from God. And it is here that we begin to see the theme of the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman starting to develop and play out. As I mentioned before, in Genesis 3.15, the word seed is in its singular form, grammatically, but there still seems to be a sense in which it refers to offspring as in, in plural form, as in many. Where humanity will physically be one family tree descending from Adam and Eve, spiritually we see two family trees emerge. One who represents the serpent, who is Satan, and they follow in his ways, and the other who represents the promised seed of the woman, because they put their trust and hope in God and in the Savior that God promises will come to To deliver them. So we see that Cain was not the promised seed of the woman who will deliver his people. He was a sinner and a murderer and put under a curse by God. And Abel was not the promised seed either, since his life was cut short. The promised seed is not going to be the first one right out of the gate, if you will. This perhaps shouldn't be a surprise, since Cain and Abel came from Adam and Eve, man and woman whereas the promise God gave in Genesis 3.15 said that the seed would come from the woman. It doesn't say seed of man and woman, just woman. So that's an important hint. We should be looking for the seed who comes from a woman only. In other words, way back in Genesis 3.15, we appear to have an allusion to the virgin birth. Interesting. (laughs) I found that interesting. Now, with Cain and Abel out of the picture... We are still left with the question of who will the seed of the woman be, and when will he come? With Cain turned apostate and Abel dead, it momentarily appears all hope is lost. But then we see another son is born to Adam and Eve in Genesis 4:25, named Seth. And the word for Seth in Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word to place or to appoint. And this is what Eve says when Seth is born. God has appointed for me another offspring, or seed, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So it appears that Seth is the one who will take up the line of the promised seed. We see that we see this is confirmed in Genesis 5, which is a genealogy that starts in Adam and Seth and traces Seth's descendants several generations down to Noah. In the last part of Genesis 4, we have the list of Cain's descendants. As I mentioned in Genesis 5, we have Seth. Now, it is at this point we really start to see the two family trees forming. The family tree of Cain, who re- represents the seed of the serpent, and the family tree of Seth, who represent, represent the promised seed of the woman. But all is not well with Seth's family tree, the ones who are supposed to be the good guys. Right at the beginning of chapter 6, right after the description of Seth's descendants, in 6, 1 to 2, it says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. It's kind of a, it's a mysterious and interesting passage. And a common interpretation of this verse is that sons of God referred to angels who married daughters of men and had children by them. But some theologians point to Matthew twenty-two thirty, where Jesus basically said that angels don't get married. So in that view, the phrase sons of God would not refer to angels who married human women. In the context of the two family trees we've been following, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it makes sense that sons of God could, could very well refer to the family representing the seed of the woman. At this point in the story, this is Seth's descendants, and daughters of men refer to women's, women of Cain's descendants representing the seed of the serpent. What was happening was the seed of the woman was intermarrying with the seed of the serpent. Seth's descendants should have remained a separate and distinct family from Cain's in order to preserve the, the promise of the seed of the woman, but they didn't. What they should have been doing was teaching the Canaanites and bring them back to the worship of God. They were not supposed to join the Canaanites in the rebellion against God, but they did. And just two verses later in 6.5, we see that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It doesn't seem like this is just a coincidence. This is the third fall. The sin that brought about this fall was Seth's descendants intermarrying with Cain's, joining them in the rebellion of God instead of leading them back to God. The Sethites fell from their state of being the family of the seed of the woman. The effect of this fall was a broken relationship between believer and unbeliever, for the simple fact that there were no more believers because they had joined forces with the unbelievers, which resulted in the entire human race descending into great evil and corruption. The punishment for this fall was that God would flood the entire earth and wipe out all living things. However, Noah, a descendant of Seth, was righteous and blameless, and he found favor in God's eyes. God told Noah that he would establish his covenant with Noah and his sons, and that they would be saved from the flood. Kids, you know this story too, right? Very well known. Noah and the flood, and the animals, and the ark. Because of the continual evil and corruption that mankind had descended into, God flooded the earth with water and everything died, except for Noah and his family. So at this point, we have seen the three falls and the three punishments as a result of each. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, and so their relationship with God became broken, as well as all of their children's relationship with God. For their punishment, they are cast out of the garden of Eden, away from the immediate presence of God. And the implications of this first fall play themselves out and lead to the second two falls. In the second fall, Cain murdered his his brother Abel, which resulted in a broken relationship between brother and brother, and ultimately between man and man. For Cain's punishment, he was cast out of the land of Eden, further away from God, and became a wanderer in the east. Cain and his descendants fell away from the family of the promised seed and came to represent the family of the serpent. Seth was born after this, and he and his children carried on the promised seed, seed of the woman. But then in a the third fall, Seth's descendants intermarried with Cain's, mixing the two family trees, which led to the entire human race falling into continual evil and corruption. The punishment for this was that God cast them all all out of the world through the flood. So again, Cain where was I? So again, um, Adam and Adam was cast out of the garden, Cain was banished from Eden, and all mankind was eradicated from the world. After the flood, Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk off the wine and passed out naked in his tent. His son Ham came in and saw him and told his his two brothers outside. His two brothers took a garment, laid it on the shoulders, and walked backward into the tent and covered their father. When Noah woke up and learned what Ham had done to him, he cursed Ham and his son Canaan, and by extension their descendants. And Noah blessed Shem and Japheth and their descendants. Now I won't have time to get into the various theories regarding why Ham's youngest son, Canaan, was the one who received the curse, or why the punishment seemed more severe than the crime. But feel free to ask me afterwards. This part of the story is important because we will see that the two seeds, the two family trees, still live on. The evil seed of the serpent had previously become increasingly prevalent on the earth, and God wiped them out by the flood. But that seed was not totally wiped out in mankind. That seed lives on in Noah's family can be seen by the incident of Noah's drunkenness and Ham's indiscretion. We also see the promise seed of the woman continuing on. It is passed to Noah and one of his sons. God makes his covenant with Noah, and as Noah's son Shem specifically, who the promise of the seed will be passed to. You can see this in Noah's blessing of Shem when he says in chapter 9, 26, 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Japheth receives a blessing too, but Shem the first and the greatest. And the genealogies in chapter 10 and especially 11 confirm that the promise is indeed passed to and through Shem. Shem is the ancestor of most of the peoples who spoke Semitic languages, including Israel. Now, after these events, Noah's son and their wives have children, and those and their descendants begin to spread out and repopulate the earth. Genesis 10 is an entire chapter that lists the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It is often called the Table of Nations, and many of the names in the list are recognizable names of ancient people groups. In Genesis 11, we have the famous story of the Tower of Babel. At that time, there was still one language, and men gathered together in the east in a place called Shinar. And they said this in 11.4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In their pride, they wanted to make a name for themselves and not to glorify God. They created a high tower in order in order to try to reach to heaven. Peter Lightheart has suggested that this probably didn't mean they were trying to build a tower that literally reached to heaven, but rather they, they had built a false temple to try to reach heaven spiritually on their own. They also resisted God's command to to mankind to spread out over the face of the earth and take dominion. For the purpose of this sermon, I believe the main thing to note in this story is that the seed of the serpent is still indeed alive and well amongst mankind. So God came down and put an end to the project and confused their language so that they couldn't understand each other anymore and dispersed them across the earth. But where in all of this Is the promised seed of the woman that we've been tracing. It is at this point that the narrative shifts significantly. We have seen the three falls resulting in three different kinds of broken relationships and the three punishments as a result. Sin has worked itself thoroughly into the fabric of humanity, even after the flood. But now God will bring forth three heroes that will bring about the foundation of the family that will bear forth the seed of the woman. Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, gives a specific list of Shem's descendants, and leads to a man called Abram. From this point on, Genesis focuses on Abram and his descendants. Genesis clearly shows us that Abram and his, his children will carry on the promise of the seed of the woman. In Genesis 12, when God first appears to Abram, God tells him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What other blessing could be in view here other than the blessing that the seed of the woman would bring, which is the promise that he will defeat our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. As God brings the, begins to bring forth this family that will bear forth the promised seed, begins to repair the various broken relationships that the three falls have caused. With Abram whom God later names renames Abraham, God works on the broken relationship between God and mankind, which first, which began at the first fall with Adam and Eve. The name Abram means high or honored father, and Abraham means father of a multitude. The focus of Abraham's life is on God the father. As, as Adam was the father of all mankind but fell, Abraham is reconciled with God and becomes the father of the family that will bring about the promised seed. Abraham came from a family of pagan idol worshippers, as likely most of mankind were pagans at that time and not following the one true God. God took the initiative with Abraham and drew Abraham to himself. Now God appeared to, Abraham, uh, appeared to him a, t- a total of seven times, and these are recorded in Genesis 12-22. God made covenants with Abraham, and Abraham obeyed God's commands. Abraham shows us what it means to obey God the Father and what it means to be a father. God promised Abraham a land and a people who would possess that land and promises that those people, Abraham's descendants, would be a blessing to all the people of the earth. A major theme of Abraham's life is patience, as he must wait patiently for the son that God promises to him. Abraham does get impatient and tries to bring about the promise himself by taking his wife's handmaid, Hagar. But God still brings about his promise that Abraham's wife Sarah will bear a son. His name is Isaac. Now, Isaac is interesting because there really isn't a literary section in Genesis that is exclusively devoted to him. His story is mostly linked to his father Abraham and to his son Jacob. So in the three falls and three heroes pattern we're using, Isaac is not one of the three heroes, technically. But Isaac is, of course, more important than just merely a link. Isaac serves as a type of Christ himself. Isaac is the promised son come to Father Abraham. And God commands Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Abraham obeys, even though Abraham loves his son Isaac more than anything. But at the last second, God sends an angel to stop Abraham from going through with it. Isaac's son Jacob, then, is the second of the three heroes. As described in Genesis 25, Jacob is the younger twin brother of Esau. As God worked in Abraham's life to begin undoing the effects of the first fall, which was between God and mankind, God worked in Jacob's life to begin undoing the the, the effects of the second fall, which was between brother and brother. If you remember, that second fall happened when Cain murdered Abel. There, There are several interesting parallels between these two pairs of brothers, Cain and Abel on the one hand, and Esau and Jacob on the other. As I mentioned before, Cain and Abel may have been twins, like Esau and Jacob were. In Genesis 4, Cain hunted his brother down and killed him when they were out in a field. Genesis 25 says that Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. When Cain murdered his brother, he forfeited his birthright of the firstborn son and showed himself to be unrighteous. Esau also despised and forfeited his birthright, which included the Abrahamic promise of offspring and land and the promised seed of the woman. And also Abel, Abel brought a pleasing offering to his heavenly father and was blessed for it, which made Cain angry, and he desired to kill Abel because of it. Jacob, like Abel, brought a pleasing offering to his father and, and was blessed for it, and this made Esau angry, and he desired to kill Jacob because of it. But what is even more interesting, though, uh, is that while Cain was cast Cain was cast out of the land of Eden and went east and became a wanderer in the land. Jacob, the younger, not Esau, is the one who wanders to the east to flee from his murderous brother. Now, the the theme of Jacob's life is wrestling. He wrestles with his brother in the the womb, and he wrestles him for his birthright. He, quote-unquote, wrestles with his father for his blessing, because his father preferred Esau and not Jacob. After he flees Esau and goes to live with his uncle Laban, Jacob wrestles with Laban for his wages and for his wives. And after he leaves Laban to head back to his homeland, he has a very interesting encounter in chapter 32 where he wrestles, literally, with a mysterious man who turns out to be a theophany, which is a visible and tangible manifestation of God himself. And many theologians believe this is a manifestation of of Jesus Christ himself. Jacob does not let go of him until he blesses him. In response, the man says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Brothers wrestle with each other. This is what they do. Cain wrestled his brother down in anger and killed him. Jacob wrestled with various brothers, if you will, but his most important wrestling match was with the pre-incarnate Christ. The New Testament says that Jesus is our brother. Jacob wrestled with this brother and prevailed, was blessed, and was reconciled to him. In this way, Jacob is the hero who reconciles the broken brother-to-brother relationship because as the father of the nation of Israel, he is blessed by and reconciles with our spiritual brother, Jesus. It is notable, too, that not long after this event, Jacob reconciles with his biological brother, Esau. Now, Jacob whom God renamed Israel, had 12 sons. Starting in Genesis 37 and continuing all the way to the end of the book, the story primarily focuses on Jacob's son, Joseph. We'll see that Joseph is the third hero of the three heroes. Joseph was the first son of Jacob's wife, Rachel, and Jacob loved him the most of all his sons. And his brothers hated him for it. Also, Joseph had a couple of dreams where his whole family was bowing down to him, And he told this to his brothers, and they hated him all the more. His brothers ended up selling Joseph into slavery, and he was taken to Egypt. In Egypt, he became a servant of Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. Now, God was with Joseph, and he was such a good servant that Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household. Potiphar's wife tried to sleep with him, but Joseph refused. After she tried several times, she got upset and accused Joseph of trying to assault her. Because of this, Potiphar threw Joseph in jail. For God was still with Joseph, and he was such a good servant that the jailkeeper put him in charge of all the other prisoners. Eventually, Joseph was able to get out of jail because he had interpreted some dreams of Pharaoh. In these dreams, God had revealed to Pharaoh that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. Joseph proposed that Pharaoh save up grain during the seven good years so that they would have enough to live on during the seven years of famine. Pharaoh was so impressed with this that he put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt such that Joseph was second only to Pharaoh himself. And Joseph saved up grain throughout Egypt during the seven good years, and during the seven famine years he sold the grain to the Egyptian people and to many other nations as well, and thus saved many from the famine. Joseph is the third of the three heroes in Genesis because through him, God begins to undo the effects of the third fall. The third fall, if you remember, was when the Sethites intermarried with the Cainites, which resulted in the entire world becoming corrupt. Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph to lie with her. He a Hebrew, and she an Egyptian, and married to another. But Joseph refused this intermarriage, if you will. Unlike the Sethites, Joseph served the unbelievers well and bore a good witness, but avoided joining in with them in their corruption. And as the sin of the Sethites brought the punishment of death to the whole world through the flood, Joseph, Joseph gives life to the whole world during a time of severe famine. But in all this, uh, we, uh, we need to return to tracing the line of the promised of the woman. And it is here that we find an interesting point of departure. The previous heroes slash patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, carry on the family line of the promised seed of the woman. However, Joseph does not. It was his brother Judah who carried forward the promised We know this primarily through other books of the Bible. Gospels tell us that Jesus, who is, of course, the promised seed of the woman, descended from King David, and David was from the tribe of Judah. But there are also indications in Genesis that it will be Judah. But why? Why Judah and not Joseph? The simplest answer, of course, is that God is sovereign, and he made a sovereign choice before the world began. And I would tend not to give much credence to any theories that would suggest that God didn't know which of Jacob's sons it would be until after they were born. But I do think Genesis gives us some potential clues as to why why it was Judah. One has to do with Leah, Judah's mother. Leah was one of Jacob's two wives, yet Jacob didn't love Leah. Leah tried to earn Jacob's love by having sons for him, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. When each one was born, she says something to the effect of, Now my husband will love me. But when Judah was born, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. With Judah, she stopped trying to earn Jacob's love. And in the midst of her heartache, she decides to praise God anyway. Also, the three brothers that precede Judah, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, had disqualified themselves at various points in their lives, leaving the birthright to Judah. At the end of Jacob's life, when he gives a blessing to all of his sons while on his deathbed, he gives Judah the most honored and preeminent blessing. And he says to Judah that the scepter shall not depart from him, the scepter being a symbol of kingship, until Shiloh comes, Uh, Shiloh is an obscure Hebrew word that has been interpreted as the scent, the seed, interesting, or the peaceable or prosperous one. So it definitely appears to be a, a reference to the seed of the woman becoming Messiah. At the close of Genesis, then, we see that God has worked through Joseph to save the world from famine, which preserved the line of Judah, who will be the one who carries on the promised seed of the woman but of course, Genesis is just the beginning. At the end of the book, the promise of the woman, the Messiah, had not yet come to crush the head of the serpent. But the promise is still very alive. In the book of Exodus, God commands the Israelites to make a tabernacle for God, which was a portable temple. The tabernacle had three zones, the outer courtyard, and then the Tabernacle itself, had the holy place and the holy of holies. And as he entered into each one, you would get closer to God, similar to the three zones God originally created, the world, the land of Eden, and the garden of Eden. Only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and only once per year on the date of atonement, and only after following a strict protocol outlined by God. The Ark of the Covenant was kept here, on top of which was the mercy seat, and the holy of holies was where God would actually dwell with Israel. And the later permanent temples that Israel built, though they were subdivided into several areas, had the same three basic zones. Herod's temple, for example, had an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles could be here, representing the whole world. And then the inner courts were just for Jewish, Jewish people, representing brotherhood. The holy place and the holy of holies were for the Jewish priests. And when the high priest would go in into the holy of holies, He went in as a representing Adam before the fall, but more more importantly, he represented the second Adam to come. In both the tabernacle and the temples, the Holy of Holies was closed off by a big thick curtain or veil, which separated God from humanity. But when the, the seed of the woman finally did come, Jesus the Christ, the second Adam, our high priest, and our brother, he crushed the head of the serpent by his death on the cross. And when he did this, the temple veil was torn completely in two. By his sacrificial death, Jesus has brought us, his people, back in the same kind of close relationship with God that Adam and Eve had at the very beginning of the world. So let me pray as I close. Father God, thank you for this morning and your word. And uh, pray you'd plant it in our hearts and pray you would work in us, Lord, this week to... Go and live it out. Pray you'd be glorified by our day and our week. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.